Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. Hear now the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. May God bless the reading of the word. Well, I have a confession to make that every once in a while, while preparing for a sermon, I find myself on a deep and winding rabbit trail that sometimes might have little to do with the topic at hand. Has this ever happened to you? You find yourself looking up something and suddenly you don't even know how you got there and I have to bring myself back to the topic at hand. Well, this happened to me this week when I realized that Valentine's Day is quickly approaching. And as a self-proclaimed lover of love, I found myself wondering, why do we celebrate Valentine's Day? This may seem like a simple question, but will you travel down the rabbit trail with me for a moment? Valentine's Day began as a Christian feast day honoring an early Christian martyr named Saint Valentine. Or maybe it was two Saint Valentines and the stories are a little murky, but here's what I found. One legend contends that Valentine was a priest during the third century in Rome. When Emperor Claudius II, decided that single men made better soldiers than married men, he said, no more weddings. We need to do away with marriage so that these men can go and fight. 
Well, Valentine said that marriage is a good and godly thing, so he continued to marry people despite Claudius's orders, and when Claudius found out, he was put to death, a martyr. Another story suggests that Valentine may have been killed for attempting to help Christians escape from harsh Roman prisons where they were often beaten and tortured. According to legend, perhaps Valentine was the one who fell in love with a young girl who would come and visit him while he was in prison, and at the bottom of his notes he signed, Your Valentine. Still others insist Valentine was a man who provided miraculous healing to a young girl, and after the healing, the whole house converted to Christianity, and that simply wouldn't do, so he was put to death. So here we have three completely different stories about St. Valentine. It is totally murky how we got from these stories to a holiday where we exchange chocolate and flowers and cards. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but it seems that the common thread in all of these stories about one St. Valentine or three St. Valentines is the idea of love in action. And, and all of these men, they showed a love that deeply cared about the physical and spiritual well-being of those around him. They took seriously the commands that Jesus told the disciples when they asked him in Matthew 22, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus responded with, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second greatest commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophet. So love God and love your neighbor. That's what it all boils down to. Our scripture today looks at four specific areas of the law that these two commandments hang on. And they show us that for Jesus, treating one another with love is the most important thing. Our passage today is from Matthew chapter 5, which you may know is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. These are the memorable, well-known, best hits of Jesus in the Bible. I'm talking these are the Beatitudes, the salt and the light. This contains the Lord's Prayer, the passage about do not worry. You would know many of these passages by heart that are contained in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. If you had one of those red-letter Bibles, this section would be entirely red. There's this, this was a really, really long sermon, the longest sermon that Jesus gave in recorded history. And I found myself laughing because in the Methodist church, we have this unspoken rule that a sermon should be between 15 and 25 minutes long. And I don't think this one would have made the cut. <laughs> This sermon would have taken hours, if not multiple days, to get across all of this information. I mean, think about the passage we read and heard just a moment ago from Matthew chapter 5. That could be a four-part sermon series, but that's just one part in Matthew chapter 5 from the Sermon on the Mount. But these crowds, they are hungry. They are desperate to hear these words from Jesus about what it means to live in and for the kingdom of God. Jesus begins the sermon by going up on a high mountain and sitting down among the crowds and the disciples who have gathered around him. And he begins with, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, but I say to you. At first glance, when we hear this, you know, four times throughout this passage, 
It seems like Jesus has come to wipe the slate clean, to change the way we live out our Christian faith. But with a closer look, we will see that that is not exactly the case. Rather than contradict or invalidate the law, Jesus' words are seeking to expand the law. They fill out the Ten Commandments that we have, the Decalogue, by extending, intensifying, and even deepening the original meaning that they would have had in their minds. So let's think about this first example. Do not murder. I think that anyone of a sound mind could agree that murder is bad, right? This is not something that we have to debate about. We can all think about that taking the life of another human has to be one of the most heinous and terrible crimes we can imagine. And in fact, this is not just a Christian virtue to say murder is bad. It's a federal crime. This is something we can all agree on in a world where we have different opinions. This is one we can get behind. But Jesus here is taking it further than something that just everybody believes, that just everybody thinks is fine. Jesus is saying, for Christians, we have to think about our thoughts and our intentions more than even just the act itself. So Jesus' ban on murder includes both anger towards a brother and insults toward a sister. Jesus' extension teaches us that anger, or even the thought of anger, can be just as violent and deadly as physical murder. But then he takes it even further in verses 23 through 24. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift, go before, in, before the altar, and go be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come back and offer your gift. Okay, so let's think about this. Jesus took something so simple that we, we all thought we could do in our sleep. Do not murder. We're like, check, did it, easy, not a temptation. And Jesus said, let's, let's actually take it a little deeper. What is at the root of murder? And he says, all right, we're not going to hold on to anger anymore. Don't even be angry with a brother or sister. And we're like, okay, well, that's, that's a little harder, but maybe we can get behind that. And then he takes it even further and says, don't even let yourself be unreconciled. This is a radical reframing that shifts from a legalistic view of the law as a list of do's and don'ts and goes to the heart of the matter, that how we treat one another matters. This section of the Sermon on the Mount focuses on interpersonal relationships, the way that we interact with each other, the way that my actions affect you, the way your actions affect me, because we spend so much of our lives intertwined with other human beings, we have to consider how we affect one another. Without relationships and interactions with other people, our lives would have very little meaning or purpose. Yet it's because of the relationships and interactions with people that we do experience anger and stress and frustration. I mean, try for a moment to imagine life with no human interaction. No arguments, no fights, no misunderstandings, no obligations, no expectations, but also no love, no joy, no laughter, no life. 
Obviously, the answer to our interpersonal relationship struggles is not to withdraw or avoid interaction with other people, but rather it's to learn how to have meaningful, honoring, and constructive conversations with people, even if we disagree about something. But it's rare to find groups like this where you can be intentional and you can practice reconciliation, where you can extend forgiveness and grace in the ways that we have been extended. I can only think of one time in my life when I've been in a group that was specifically designed for this, where we were supposed to practice our interpersonal skills. When I was in seminary, part of a requirement of becoming a United Methodist pastor in our conference is you have to do something called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education. So in the summer of 2018, I did my CPE at an Emory Hospital in Atlanta. And so it was a 40-hour-a-week thing with like six or seven other students from all around the world. And this was a really diverse group. There were two men in my group who were training to be Catholic priests. One was from India and one was from Mexico. There was a non-denominational pastor from Brazil. There was a Presbyterian minister from Anniston. And then just two boring Methodist pastors from Atlanta. <laughs> but we all came together to this weekly time with our own theologies, our own worldviews, assumptions, cultural understandings. And we had to interact with each other for one day during the week. Most of our time was spent with patients in the hospital and providing that spiritual care to people, trying out the skills of being a pastor. But then we had this one day where we came together and we had education, we had verbatim time, and then we had the IPR time, interpersonal relations time. And this was a specific time where we had to list out things like our gratitudes, our frustrations, compliments, things that bothered us. But I don't mean we listed those things about general things that happened during our week or on the weekend. We were naming specific gratitudes and complaints about each other, in front of each other, in front of the whole group. We were sitting around a round table, and our educator, this was, this was an intentional practice. She would have us look a person in the eye and say, it really bothered me when you did this. And then the other person responds to that most of the time by saying, I had no idea. I'm so sorry it came across that way. But can you imagine how strange this is in a world where we don't really do this? We're really good at pushing things under the rug or shaking things off. But this was a time that we reconciled with each other in front of other people, in front of our educators, and it wasn't always bad stuff. We would also say, I really appreciated it when you asked me if I needed something from the water fountain. You know, or I really appreciated this thing you did for me this week. But I have to say this intentional time of looking each other in the eye and making sure nothing was left unsaid, no topics were off the table, it made us deeply accountable to one another. We left the space being more connected, we felt freer, and honestly more connected than I have with any other group in my life. It was the first time I experienced the truth that nothing that we do as disciples is independent. Everything we do has an effect on the people around us. Our actions, our inactions, our words, our thoughts, our choices, 
they all say something about who we are. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get at in this reframing of the law. Being a follower of Christ and living for the kingdom of God demands a whole new way of living. It is a commitment that moves us beyond just checking boxes for the sake of saying, I didn't do that, or I did do that, to helping us understand what is at the root of what we do and why we do it. It's a way of thinking that reminds us that we are not our own, but we are deeply connected to those around us. In a world that favors individualism and autonomy and independence, this can be a really hard thing to grasp. We might be tempted to resist the idea that it matters how we treat one another, to think that it's easier or even preferred to stick to our own, to push things under the rug, to try and forgive and forget. But in this prophetic sermon that Jesus is giving, he is saying that it matters how we treat one another. And this starts with the people closest to us. He mentions a brother or sister, which could extend to a husband or a wife or kids or parents. And then, of course, it extends to our larger Christian community. Jesus' words teach us that our actions are an extension of our faith. Our actions have an effect on those around us. The actions of your individual faith actually matter for the person sitting next to you in the pew. Who you choose to be in the world is not just a revelation of who you are, but also an extension of those you claim in this community. It's not enough for us just to obey God's commandments, to be able to say that we obey the commandments. We've got to back it up with our intentions and our heart. Jesus has expanded and radicalized the law, not to make our lives harder, but to make our lives richer, deeper, and more fulfilling. To love God and to love our neighbor is a way of life that changes us from the inside out. So as you continue throughout your day and into this week of love with Valentine's Day, I invite you to really consider what it means to love God and love your neighbor. How might God be challenging you to expand your understanding of love? Who might God be calling you to reconcile with? And how can you allow the love of God to transform your mind? I pray that as we ask these questions, we will be open to receive the challenge that God will place on our hearts. In the name of God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen.